This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from business to history to sports to the arts, and your stories too. Orson Welles not only changed the way film was made in Hollywood, he paved the way for so many others. He wasn't just a legendary director, but a remarkable actor and producer. Here's Jesse. The story of Orson Welles begins in tragedy. Both of his parents are dead by the time he's 15 years old. He then passed up a scholarship at Harvard to travel Europe with a small portion of his inheritance. With a gift for parlor tricks and a strong desire to work in theater, young Orson Welles was alone in the world and on a mission. He ends up in Dublin, where he tells a local theater manager that he's a big Hollywood star, a lie that ultimately lands him a gig for over a year at the Gate Theater. You see, I'd, I'd come to Ireland, not to act, but to be a painter. I'd always wanted to be a painter. In the spring of that year, I'd arrived, bought the donkey and cart, traveled about Connemara, and found myself in Dublin in the autumn of that year without what are technically referred to as financial resources. Oh, I had a few shillings, but I blew those on a good dinner and a ticket to the theater. The theater was the gate. And on the stage, I recognized in a minor part a young fellow that I'd known in the west of Ireland for a while. He was a folklorist. I went backstage to say hello to him. And he introduced me to the directors, Edwards and McLeamore. And I heard myself introducing myself to them as a noted actor from the Broadway stage. Now, what had possessed me? I don't know why I told that whopper. The idea of earning my living as an actor was so preposterous that it seemed to me probably that the a preposterous story was the only possible way of proposing it. For some reason, they... They gave me the job, it was a very good part. I'd intimated that I was willing to stay on in Ireland for a short season if sufficiently interesting roles could be found. And the first interesting role was the Archduke and that's how I started, as I say, in the theater. It was an easy start. I must confess to you that nothing's been easy since then. Wells returned to the United States and quickly found work on stage and in radio. He married his first wife, Virginia, when he was just 19 years of age in 1934. By 1935, Wells was supplementing his earnings in the theater as a radio actor in Manhattan, working with many actors who would later become the core of the Mercury Theater, which he opened in 1937 as the executive producer with a modern adaptation of Shakespeare's tragedy, Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was done by the Mercury Theater without benefit of toga. It was as timely last October as it was 1,650 years after Caesar's murder when Shakespeare wrote it. And it is as timely today. A glance at your newspaper headlines and you will understand why tonight we could wish for the extra dimension of television. Shakespeare's great political tragedy about the death of a dictator, which is also the personal tragedy of a great liberal, exists in all times without identification or special reference its time. Wells worked extensively in radio as an actor, writer, director, and producer, often without credit. Between 1935 and 1937, he was earning as much as $2,000 a week. It was in 1938 when Norson Wells broadcast his famous War of the Worlds drama 
that allegedly sent listeners into a mass panic because they thought it was real news coverage of an actual alien invasion. Ladies and gentlemen, my on. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilma's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk and as long as I can see. The more state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. About 30 of them. The next half hour of the one-hour broadcast was presented as typical evening radio programming being interrupted by a series of news bulletins. Wait a minute, something's happening. Humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. The Lord, they're turning into flames. Ah! The whole field caught up by the woods of fires. The gas tanks, tanks of the automobiles. The illusion of realism was strengthened by the fact that the show didn't cut to any regularly scheduled commercial breaks for over a half hour. In the days after the broadcast, widespread outrage was reported in the media. The program's news bulletin format was described as deceptive by some newspapers and public figures, leading to an outcry against the perpetrators of the broadcast and calls for regulation by the FCC. But the episode secured the fame of Orson Welles as a master of drama. This was his so-called apology to the press over the incident. I'm, of course, surprised that the H.G. Wells classic, which is the original for many fantasies about invasions by mythical monsters from the planet Mars, I'm extremely surprised to learn that a story which has become familiar to children through the medium of comic strips and uh, many succeeding novels and adventure stories should have had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Orson Welles soon had the attention of Hollywood and received an offer from RKO Radio Pictures for him to write, produce, direct, and perform in two motion pictures with full creative control and the right to final cut. This was an unprecedented move for the industry, especially for someone who had no experience in film. I got that good a contract because I didn't really want to make a film. And you know, when you don't really want to go out to Hollywood, or at least this was true in the old days, or the golden days of Hollywood, when you honestly didn't want to go, yeah. then, then the deals got better and better. In my case, I didn't want money. I wanted authority. So I asked the impossible, hoping to be left alone. And at the end of a year's negotiations, I got it. While RKO rejected his first two movie proposals, they agreed on the third offer for Citizen Kane. Wells co-wrote, produced, and directed the film and performed the lead role. Now in complete control of the government of this state, I made no campaign promises because until a few weeks ago, I had no hope of being elected. <laughs> when we return... The story of Orson Welles continues on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and what an American story we're hearing. We last left off with the great Orson Welles taking Hollywood by storm at the age of 25, writing, producing, directing, and acting in Citizen Kane. There is only one man who can rid the politics of this state of the evil domination of boss Jim Geddes. I am speaking of Charles Foster Kane. The fighting liberal, the friend of the working man, the next governor of this state, who entered upon this campaign with one purpose only, to point out and make public the dishonesty, the downright villainy of boss Jim W. Geddes' political machine. Now in complete control of the government of this state, I made no campaign promises. Because until a few weeks ago, I had no hope of being elected. (laughs) Now, however, I have something more than a hope. The initial working draft screenplay of Citizen Kane, dated April 16, 1940, was titled American. Orson Welles was just 25 years old when he directed, co-wrote, starred in, and produced the film, which was his very first feature. Movie buffs often consider it to be the best film ever made. Here is Martin Scorsese. When I really discovered what a director does, and that is, um, I saw Citizen Kane on television for the first time. And I began to become aware of editing and camera positions. Um, And what I guess happened there, of course, is that what he did, Wells, was literally, he was not afraid of being self-conscious with the camera and making self-reverential remarks with the camera and literally letting the audience understand yes, the camera is looking through the floor up into the ceiling, you know. Wells did this, and it had, he did it with such conviction and with such brilliance that you began to realize, ah, I see the camera moves, and I began noticing camera movement because he used that wide-angle lens a great deal. And if you use a wider-angle lens and you move quick enough, you see the walls speeding past you, you know. Um, and this is what I think Wells brought to uh, cinema, uh, to American cinema particularly, because up to that time, it was the seamless film, in a way. Um, the hidden camera, the the, uh, the camera that you couldn't tell was there. So Wells was the, the one to really break open, open up the Pandora's box of uh, cameras flying up in the eye. In, in a funny way, I guess, uh, picking up where silent films left off, the odd thing about the picture, and I've seen it countless times, you know, the enigma of it is Kane itself, Kane, Kane himself. You don't know him. You can't get to know him. Uh, he's afraid of knowing himself. He's afraid of letting anything out that might, uh, that might be... Uh, uh, Indicative of his feelings, his emotions, uh, and it's not—he's not passive, though. You see, he's not passive, but he's got this this wall up. That uh, how many times I've seen the picture? I cannot get—I um, can't really feel for him as much as I did in the beginning. But in the beginning, when I first saw the film, many times I was—I was feeling more for Orson Welles himself, acting in the film. I liked him personally. Multi-millionaire newspaper tycoon Charles Foster Kane based on the real-life William Randolph Hearst, dies alone in his extravagant mansion, Xanadu, speaking a single word, Rosebud. In an attempt to figure out the meaning of this word, a reporter tracks down the people who worked and lived with Kane as they tell their stories in a series of flashbacks that reveal much about Kane's life, but not enough to unlock the riddle of his dying breath. Here is Steven Spielberg. It means everything to me. Citizen Kane is is a... a is and if not the icon, it is an icon of 
of courage. I'm, I'm, talking about, I'm, not, I'm talking about the courage of the filmmaker, the courage, the audacity. It's about courage and audacity, and I'm making this my way, and I'm going to deepen the focus. I don't care how many layers of makeup those actors sweat off. We're going to see from one inch to infinity in every shot. We're going to see ceilings, and we're going to we're going we're to tell a very convoluted mystery story about a man's life, and and I it is just one of the great movies ever made and I think many people are going to agree it's just one of the great American experiences in the, in, in, the, in the cinema. While famous directors like Scorsese and Spielberg look back at Citizen Kane as a work of pure genius, Orson Welles was rather modest when it came time to describe his approach to cinematography. After all, he had no previous experience at the time. Ignorance, sheer ignorance, you know, there's no confidence to equal it. It's only when you know something about a profession, I think that you're timid or careful. I thought you could do anything with a camera that the eye could do or the imagination could do. And if you come up from the bottom in the film business, you're taught all the things that the cameraman doesn't want to attempt for fear he will be criticized for having failed. And in this case, I had a cameraman who didn't care if he was criticized if he failed, and I didn't know that there were things you couldn't do, so I, anything I could think up in my dreams, I attempted to photograph, simply by not knowing that they were impossible. And of course, again, I had a, a, a great advantage, not only in the real genius of my cameraman, but in the fact that he, like all great men, I think, who are masters of a craft, told me right at the outset that there was nothing about camera work that I couldn't learn in half a day, that any intelligent person couldn't learn in half a day. And he was right. Citizen Kane was given a limited release and the film received overwhelming critical praise. It was voted Best Picture of 1941 by the National Board of Review and the New York Film Critics Circle. The film received nine Academy Award nominations, but one only for Best Original Screenplay. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Orson Welles. I'm speaking for the Mercury Theater and what follows is supposed to advertise our first motion picture. Citizen Kane is the title, and we hope it can correctly be called a coming attraction. Despite his success, Orson Welles had very little interest in romanticizing the conception of art. He never considered himself to be a true professional. I hate the romantic conception of art as taking precedence over anything. I think it's the last thing to be considered, always certainly would regard friendship as more important than my art. I have great respect for people who do regard their art in that way. And I think they are probably the most valuable artists. So I'm not defining what an artist ought to be. I'm just saying the kind of artist I am. I don't regard myself as fundamentally a professional, you know, anyway. I'm a, basically an adventurer. And those people who are serious and are professional, truly and deeply serious at the expense of every other value in life, are probably the people who make the biggest contribution to art. I certainly wouldn't like to be one of them. Orson Welles didn't see himself as much of a director. In fact, he didn't see anyone as much of a director. Not a real actor-director in movies, I'm convinced of it. I don't think that uh, uh, Olivier would be any better in Shakespeare in the movies with another director. 
I might, as a rival director, think somebody could make a better picture around it, as I do uh, uh, Chaplin, or yep. as he might think about my pictures. Yep. But not, I don't think there's anything to do with him as an actor that amounts to anything. There might be a take or two you'd improve, but not enough so it matters. I think the real, I, first of all, I think directing is the most overrated job in the world. It's the only one I really love in show business, but I think it is tremendously overrated. Uh, a director ought to be the assistant and the foundation of a performance, you know? And I think that is a very difficult job, a very worthy job, one that I'm proud to do and the only one in films that gives me any pleasure at all. I loathe acting in films. But I do think that there's a, it's been overblown because it's the only profession, movie directing, not stage direct, the only profession in the world where you can be incompetent and go on being successful for 30 years with nobody ever discovering it. The only job that a director can do in a film of real value is to do something more than what will happen automatically. If the story is put on, if the actors are good, they find themselves around the cutter, the cameraman, everything. If a director is something of a cameraman, something of a cutter, something of an actor, something of a writer, and preferably completely a cameraman, completely a writer, completely an actor, then he, his contribution is a real one. Otherwise, he's simply the man that says, action, cut, take it a little slower, take it a little faster, and nobody will ever discover that he doesn't know, know anything. Orson had a tendency to see everyone on the set as winging it, faking it until they made it, exactly like he did, from directors down to the actors. I think the greatest living actor of Shakespeare uh, is only guessing. It's a, maybe a divine guess, but it's still a guess. What's the tradition? Most tradition is just a succession of bad habits, you know. Is, uh, is, is, is less actors, lesser actors imitating the affectations of bigger actors. I don't believe in, in tradition. I just believe in practice, in the living practice of a thing. When we return, the life of Orson Welles continues right here on Our American Stories. Return to the story of Orson Welles, and you're hearing him in his own words. We love doing that here on the show. I love when he said, I didn't know there were things I couldn't do. By goodness, that's just terrific. And he was an adventurer, self-described, and hobbyist. And that's the Wright brothers, too. And so many of the entrepreneurs and innovators that we talk about and tell stories about here on the show. Now let's return to Welles on his thoughts on film production, the golden days of radio, and living a life of fame. I don't think anonymity is, uh, is an advantage to a, anybody who depends on the public. That's a kind of a, a kind of obvious. If you depend on the public, the less anonymous you are, the better you're doing. 
Orson Welles would never reach the high watermark of Citizen Kane in Hollywood again. There was a lot of drama surrounding the lead character being loosely based on newspaper giant William Randolph Hearst. He tried to buy Citizen Kane from RKO and have the movie shelved. When that failed, he boycotted RKO from advertising the movie in any of his papers. As a result, theaters refused to run it, and the film lost money, even though the critics loved it. This was the last time that RKO, or anyone else in the industry for that matter, would give full creative power and final say over editing to an actor ever again. I've uh, only controlled my destiny to the extent that I have seldom deliberately done something that I felt to be ignoble. That's about all I can say so that you go further and say, how much does destiny control me? A great deal. You know, I'm the victim of the most incredible series of misfortunes and the most incredible series of good luck strikes. You know, both. He would go on to make dozens of films, theater productions, and radio dramas over the years. From the 50s on, he'd end up spending most of his time in Europe, raising money for his own projects via film and TV work that was often beneath him, and always searching for backers. I don't think television is a superb medium of entertainment. I think it's a second-rate medium of entertainment. It's basically a second-hand medium of entertainment. I think it shows movies in a small, second-hand way. I think television drama is wonderful for the young fellows who want to break in and so on, but really isn't in the league of fine movies or theater or radio, which I think is superior. I think everything that is done in television as entertainment is less than the best the television is, which is basically, in my view, a medium of communication rather than of entertainment. You can expose a personality you can deal with a subject, it's a medium of journalism, medium of ideas, of information, even a narrative medium, wonderful storytelling medium, as opposed to a dramatic medium. So in, to that extent, entertainment is possible on it. Orson found plenty of work in TV, film, and radio to fund his own theater and film productions. His passion was in production, as a profession, a hobby, and an obsession. I was an actor manager for a long time, and I was an actor manager because there was such a thing as radio. And I made $1,500 a week as, a, as an anonymous radio actor in those good golden days when you could do that, and uh, about 1200 went into the theater. And there would have been no theater if I couldn't have put that money into it. I've just finished a picture now called Don Quixote Goes to the Moon, which was made without a script, entirely improvised, is an extremely experimental picture. I could no more have got, I don't know anybody crazy enough to have put up money for it. And uh, if there's anything valuable that I've done as a director in films in, in years, this is it. If it's a flop, it's an interesting one, but it never could have even begun if I'd uh, had to get somebody else to finance it. So I've had to use my career as an actor rather cynically. I've had to do a lot of, uh, of uh, take a lot of jobs and keep myself alive as a terrible word, movie star, something I never wanted to be, simply because it provided me with the dough to do a few pictures. 
Don Quixote ended up being one of Orson's uncompleted projects. Production began in 1957 and continued until the day he died in 1985. But Wells didn't care that it had taken him over 30 years to create a film that would never finish. It was his own personal project that he had financed himself. Some might consider that to be a colossal failure, but Orson Welles never directed a picture that made a profit in his entire life. He was in love with production. Here is the great Mel Brooks. It was kind of, in a, in a, in a wonderful way, responsible for American filmmaking emerging as, as an important world product, not just a, a commercial venture, you know, but uh, we joined the world of cinema art because of people like Orson Welles. 20 million years ago, an ape-like creature inhabited the earth. He was wonderful. It's a good story. I paid him $25,000, and he was supposed to do five days' work from nine to five every day narrating, you know, see, worked on a very wonderful narration. I paid him for five days, like $5,000 a day, right? And the ape stood and became man. So he started at, like, uh, to test his voice out. <laughs> this is about 10 to 9 in the morning. By 11.30, 12 o'clock, he had done all of the narration. It was all perfect. He said, any changes, I'll do anything you want, Mel. I just, I got so angry that I paid him so much, and he did it in 10 minutes. Then I, so I asked him, I said, Orson, what are you, what are, you know, what are you, what are you going to do with the 25 grand? What are you going to do with the money? And he said, Cuban cigars and Sivruga caviar. I, and he said, uh, I would have included women, but I'm getting just a little too heavy. I said, well, how many, you know, you'll get a, you, you can get about 100 Cuban cigars. And he said, and a lot of Sivruga, because I could, I could have bought Beluga, but Sivruga is just as good and half the price. If he wasn't acting, he was directing. If he wasn't directing, he was writing. If he wasn't writing, he was on the radio. If he wasn't on the radio, he might be practicing a magic trick, one that he might have learned from none other than the great Harry Houdini himself. The whole world must miss Houdini, certainly the whole theater world, because he was, without any question, the greatest showman of our time. Nobody, as a matter of fact, who ever played the halls, either in England or America or anywhere, received his salary, and nobody nobody deserved it because he could get out of anything. As you may remember, he was called an escapologist, an escape king. He was an expert in miracles. I'm proud to say he was my teacher in magic when I was young as a favorite of my father. He did give me my first lessons in the art of conjuring. I remember once performing a miracle rather in the style of Houdini's, a humble little miracle, but it cost me $75 to do in honor of a young lady whom I was courting. And this was the miracle. I asked her, it was 3 o'clock in the afternoon, in Central Park, if she would take a card, any card. All ladies know how boring that is, but I didn't know that it was boring, and I asked her to take any card. And she took the card I wanted to, and I asked her, would she like the card in her purse or in my pocket, or would she like it written in the sky, written in the sky? She said, written in the sky, and I pointed Allah Houdini to the heavens. 
And she looked up, and there, sure enough, written in the heavens over New York was the Seven of Hearts. I'd hired a sign writer, a sky writer, one of those aeroplanes with the smoke, given him $75 to write the name of the card in the sky. But as I say, she said, well, you must have seen it up there before you did the trick. When we return, the life of Orson Welles continues here on Our American Story. Return to the story of Orson Welles. And by the way, to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter, Our Five Best Stories of the Week. Again, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And while Welles is best known for Citizen Kane, he also produced world-class radio programming outside of alien invasions. The Orson Welles Almanac, also known as Radio Almanac and the Orson Welles Comedy Show, was a 1944 radio series directed and hosted by Orson Welles. Good evening, this is Orson Welles just saying hello before the show starts. This is your radio almanac for March 8th. The moon entered Virgo this morning. The moon in Virgo is a nice, sociable sign, friendly and helpful, like the man who sells you your mobile gas. Prudence Pratt, I think we've got a minute for a household hint. The white of an egg and a few drops of lemon juice will enable you to whip coffee cream. Doesn't taste very good, though. Broadcast live on the Columbia Pacific Network, the 30-minute variety program was heard Wednesdays at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. Good evening, good evening. Tonight we present, let's see, what do we present? Where's my secretary, Miss Grimmett? You needn't snap at me. You know I can always go back to driving rivets. Yes, but why should you strain yourself? They have machines for that now. Let's forget the entire incident. I wish it had never happened. Who's our guest this evening? Lucille Ball. Oh, that's right. She'll be over later. She would have been here now, but she's working on an income tax blank. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine the government wants Lucille Ball to fill out her form? <laughs> Many of the shows originated from U.S. military camps, where Wells and his guests entertained the troops. Ladies and gentlemen, your radio almanac brings you now a little music, but first, here's a last-minute bulletin from Dr. Snake Oil. If a fishbone becomes lodged in a person's throat, turn him upside down and slap him on the shoulder blades. Caution, in an upside-down position, a person's shoulder blades are not where you think they'd be. (laughs) These performances of the all-star jazz band that Wells brought together for the show were also an important force in the revival of traditional New Orleans jazz in the 1940s. This broadcast of the Orson Welles Almanac from 1944, Lucille Ball and Orson Welles break into a live, scripted sketch. Mickey, darling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mickey? I just want to glance over the headlines, dear. Have you seen this? No, what? Man found in alley, stabbed, shot, poisoned, robbed, and hung. <laughs> Police suspect foul play. 
Well, that's nice. This is your night off, dear. Stop playing detective. All right, all right. Go to bed, go to bed. Alone? My feet are cold. I know. <laughs> Mickey, where were you last night? Oh, Dora, don't be silly. You know how I feel about you. You're the eighth wonder of the world. Yeah, well, don't ever let me catch you with the other seven, bub. <laughs> oh, well, I guess we might as well turn in. Oh, Mickey, it's so nice to spend an evening like this. Lounge around in pajamas and then flop right into bed. It's so nice. Dark and quiet. Mickey, scratch my back. Hmm. Mickey, is your circulation good? Your hand feels so cold. Mickey? Mickey? What do you want, dear? I'm in here brushing my teeth. You say something, Dora? I screamed. Well, please don't. The neighbors will think I'm beating you again. There's somebody in that bed, and he's cold. Well, throw another blanket on him, dear. Orson also made a lot of money by endorsement deals and reading commercials like this one from Perrier. Deep below the plains of southern France, in a mysterious process begun millions of years ago, nature herself adds life to the icy waters of a single spring. Perrier. Its natural sparkle is more delicate than any made by man, and therefore more quenching, more refreshing, and the mixer par excellence naturally sparkling from the center of the earth. Perrier. Orson could cut a commercial like that in one take and make several hundred to several thousand dollars for recording each one. But there was one time in particular that things weren't so easy, even for an old radio pro like Orson Welles. A couple of voiceover directors decided to challenge him while recording an ad for frozen foods in 1970. We know a remote farm in Lincolnshire where Mrs. Buckley lives. Every July, peas grow there. Do you really mean that? Uh, yeah, so in other words, I'd start half a second late. We know a remote farm in Lincolnshire where Mrs. Buckley lives. Every July, peas grow there. We aren't even in the fields, you see. Yeah, we are. We're talking about them growing, and she's picked them. Yeah. <coughs> what? In July. I don't understand you, then. When must, what must be over for July? Um, when we get out of that snowy field... When I was out, we were onto a can of peas, a big dish of peas, when I said in July. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, always. I'm always past that. You are? Yes. Now, just imagine trying to be the audio guy, trying to direct a cranky Orson Welles for a commercial about frozen snow peas. Can you emphasize a bit in, in July? Why? That doesn't make any sense. Sorry. Um, There's no known way of saying an English sentence in which you... Begin a sentence with in and emphasize it. That's just idiotic, yeah, if you'll forgive me by saying so. That's just stupid. In July. I'd love to know how you emphasize in and in July. Imagine being the great Orson Welles, taking direction from an audio tech, years after directing Citizen Kane. We know a little place in the American Far West where Charlie Briggs chops up the finest prairie-fed beef and tastes... This is a lot of shit. You know that. You want one more? Yes, more yes, on yes, what beef? You, you missed the first beef, actually, completely. What do you mean, missed and it? You're emphasizing prairie fed. But you can't emphasize beef. That's like he's wanting me to emphasize in before July. Come on, fellas, you're losing your heads. I wouldn't direct any living actor like this in Shakespeare. 
Around the same time that Orson Welles went to Hollywood to write, produce, direct, and star in Citizen Kane at the age of 25, he was invited to a dinner party and asked to deliver a speech in front of the who's who. This is a story about a story within a story. I'd been introduced as a great after-dinner speaker. I don't know quite why, because I'm not. But I had been, and this was a great Hollywood dinner. Every star I'd ever seen in my life, I was tremendously impressed. There they all were, and a lot of other grand people besides Maharajas and all kinds of title folk, and I'd been called upon. Of course, being very frightened and very eager to please, I started a funny story which I'd heard that day, and I'd gone on for a while when it dawned on me that I'd forgotten how it ended. I continued with the story. I hoped that somehow I'd find find an ending, somehow be able to invent one. And the people were all looking very eagerly, waiting for the finish, because they knew that although the story was very boring, it must be boring for a purpose. Obviously, it was boring because the end was going to be so tremendously amusing. They often looked at me eagerly, and I continued and continued. And I thought, how in heaven's name can I get out of this thing? I could pretend to faint or drop dead or rush out and yell fire. I continued to invent comical finishes that elicited no titters whatsoever. Quietly and secretly praying to myself to heaven. And then my prayer was granted. Ever since then, I've, I've been a great believer in, in the efficacy of prayer because just as I'd given up hope, just as I was wondering how I could get out of this situation, the walls started to shake, the chandelier fell down from the ceiling onto the table, the people jumped out of the table. This was California, remember. It was an earthquake. So I was, I was saved. My Hollywood career was saved by an earthquake. In the end, Orson Welles was just an incredible storyteller. Directing, acting, producing, all just tricks of the trade that he learned or taught himself along the way to get the job done the way he best saw fit. Orphaned at such a young age, he lied to get on stage, took Hollywood by storm, and created one of the greatest American films ever made without having any experience in filmmaking whatsoever. He died on October 10th, 1985, from a heart attack at 70 years old just three hours after recording an interview on the Merv Griffin Show. He was discovered by his driver the next morning, lying on a bed on the second floor of his home. A portable typewriter sat balanced and still on the dead man's stomach. He always liked to type lying down, said the driver. And that is the story of the great Orson Welles. At least part of it. For Our American Stories. I'm Jesse Edwards. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thy friends or of thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me 
because I am involved in mankind. And therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. And this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment, brought to us by Hillsdale College, a great place to study the Constitution, philosophy, literature, all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and check out their great online courses. I went to a great law school in this country, University of Virginia. But I learned more taking the Constitution 101 course there than I did in three years at UVA. It's just terrific stuff. Again, that's hillsdale.edu. And now to our story of the day, this day in history. We love music on this show, as you know. Frank Sinatra for an hour, Miles Davis. We've done Jerry Garcia, Billy Joel. Uh, No kind of music we don't love. And there's nothing more American than the sound of the electric guitar. And perhaps no single more American guitar than a Fender Telecaster or Stratocaster. Some might prefer the sound and feel of a Gibson, another fine American guitar, but we'll cover that on another show. Because on this day in history, we're talking about the creator of Fender guitars, a man who helped shape the tone of music in America and around the world for the rest of time. Our American Stories producer Jesse Edwards brings us the simple story of the man who created Fender, And we'll hear from the famous musicians who at one point fell in love with this iconic brand at first sight. And more importantly, at first sound. Clarence Leonidas Fender, better known as Leo Fender, is the creator and inventor of the world-famous Fender guitars. Some of the world's greatest musicians prefer to play Fenders. Just ask Pink Floyd's David Gilmour. Fenders seem to allow the personality of the player to come through. Um, better than other guitars do. Other guitars tend to make homogenized people. They all start sounding the same through with other guitars, I find. And with you can instantly recognize with Fenders, A, which model of guitar it is, and B, who's playing it. Or American country music singer-songwriter Marty Stewart. Nashville was Telecaster heaven, you know. And every record that came out of Nashville in the 60s seemed to have... <laughs> Chicken picking and the old Johnny Cash songs, you know, like I Walk the Line. It wouldn't have been the same without a Fender guitar. Here's American country music and blues artist, singer, songwriter, and guitarist Leroy Parnell on his take on Fender guitars. The first time that I heard a Fender that I wanted to play 
when I realized that tone, I said, what is that tone? That doesn't sound like any of the guitars I'm hearing around around here was uh, when I first heard uh, the, uh, Layla, the Derek and the Dominoes album, and Clapton's guitar sound. And it sounded tremendous to me. It had clarity, but it had body. And it and it it uh, it really changed my idea about what a guitar sounded like. Leo Fender was born August 10, 1909, on his parents' farm in Anaheim, California. In Leo's spare time, he enjoyed repairing electronic equipment. During high school, Leo decided to pursue a professional career in accounting. By the early 1930s, Leo married his wife Esther and worked as an accountant for the State of California Highway Department in San Luis Obispo. When the Great Depression hit, Leo unfortunately lost his job. He borrowed $600 and opened an equipment repair shop called Fender Radio Service. Eventually, Leo got involved in the guitar and amplifier business as well. Leo soon found his true passion in life, and it ended up making him a very successful entrepreneur. Leo would reinvent and improve on the technology of the electric guitar. His new guitar had a cutting-edge sound, which ended up revolutionizing and changing the face of the music industry. In his later years, Leo's health deteriorated, but he continued to innovate right up into his final days. He suffered a number of strokes and developed Parkinson's disease and died on May 21, 1991. Leo never learned how to play the guitar. The Fender Broadcaster, launched around 1950, was the world's first commercially available guitar with a solid wooden body and bolt-on neck. Leo Fender's whole design was geared towards mass production and to a simple yet effective electric instrument. After George Fullerton joined Leo's Fender Electric Instrument Company in 1948, the two men set about devising their production solid-bodied electric guitar, the Fender Broadcaster. The principal advantage being the ability of the solid body to deliver a clean, amplified version of the string's inherent tone. Even if Leo Fender had only built this one guitar, his company's place in the history of electric guitar would be assured. Here's Mike Campbell, guitarist for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, talking about the time he first had a chance to play a broadcaster, which would later become the Telecaster, after he loaned his Stratocaster to Tom Petty. Back in 75, I think, and we were in the studio working on the first Heartbreakers record, and all I had was a Strat. Tom wanted to play guitar, so I loaned him my Strat, and then I needed something to play. So I went down. The One day I bought, I found a Broadcaster. I think it was 600 bucks. I didn't know what a Broadcaster was. I wanted a Telecaster, but it looked like a Telecaster. I later found out it was better than a Telecaster. I bought hundreds of guitars since then, and every time I go back to that one, which is the original one, this is the the uh, the clone, the almost exact clone of my original broadcaster. Every time I pull it out nowadays, whoever's getting the sound goes, what's that? You know, like, why don't you use that more often? It just makes it, I was lucky. I got a real good guitar that day, and that's what I learned to play on. In fact, I've never washed the uh, gunk off the neck. This is all my sweat and 40 years of sweat and grime. But I won't let them clean it off because I, I don't want to mess it up. And when we come back, we'll hear how the Fender Broadcaster turned into the Telecaster. We'll also hear from other rock stars about the next level of the iconic Fender brand, the all-famous Stratocaster, as Keith Richards, Eric Clapton, and Buddy Guy talk about their favorite guitars 
How odd, a man who never learned to play the guitar, who is an accountant, would revolutionize this thing called, and create in some sense, this thing called rock and roll. More after these messages. The life of Leo Fender, born on this day in history. Habib, and this is Our American Story. And when we left off listening to the story of Leo Fender, who was born on this day in history, and by the way, he died in March of 1991, and we were listening to the story of how he went from a kid who liked to take apart radios to a failed accountant who turned a $600 loan into one of the most iconic guitar brands with the creation of his guitar, The Broadcaster. And again, it, it, it's something we were talking about here in the studio. The guy never played the guitar, and yet he changed music as we know it. And this is, again, where art, commerce, entrepreneurship, and innovation collide. And there is a business here, and there is a, a genius here that, that, that changed the world that had nothing to do with music, but yet changed the music world. And, well, let's pick off where we left off. Here's Jesse Edwards again. The Fender Telecaster is the longest-running solid electric guitar still in production, a brilliantly simple piece of design which works as well today as it did when it was introduced in 1951. The Telecaster was Fender's original broadcaster electric. The company was forced to change its name when another guitar company, Gretsch, claimed prior rights to the name. But Leo Fender and his small workforce in Fullerton, California, must have been delighted with the new Telecaster name a thoroughly modern reference to the emerging medium of television just right for an equally innovative device like the Telecaster, the first commercially marketed solid-body electric guitar. The Telecaster, usually referred to as the Tele, is known for its bright, cutting tone and straightforward, no-nonsense operation. The guitar has been used by all sorts of players from all kinds of musical backgrounds. The guitar is able to emulate steel guitar sounds and is used to a great extent in country music. Here's Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones talking about his Telecaster. It gives you more range uh, on the sound of a Telecaster. Um, basically, we put the humbucker on there to give the guitar a, a little bit more range because I have several Telecasters and some we like to keep like, strictly Tele and others to give them some more. You know, If you're using open tuning, for instance, I'd put a humbucker on one end. It's, I mean, this is all highly tech, isn't it? The secret to the Telecaster sound centers on the bridge. The strings pass through the body and are anchored at the back by six furals, giving solidity and sustain to the resulting sound. A slanting back pickup is incorporated into the bridge, enhancing the guitar's treble tone. The Telecaster will continue to survive due to its simplicity, effectiveness, and versatility.
Fender Stratocaster is perhaps the most popular and most emulated solid electric guitar ever. Launched in early 1954, it was designed by Leo Fender together with his colleague Freddie Tavares. The two were also helped by the contributions of country musician Bill Carson. Leo Fender had already pioneered the solid electric guitar with the Telecaster. The stylish Strat, epitome of the 1950s tailfin flash design, built upon Fender's idea of a guitar engineered for mass production rather than handcrafted for individual players. It had three pickups where most electrics only had two. There was a tremolo arm to bend the pitch of the strings and return them more or less to accurate tuning. The strings could also be adjusted at the bridge. The guitar also featured a contoured body for player comfort and a jack plug socket recessed into the front of the body. Fender Strats continue to be a very popular guitar today. Buddy Holly, Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, Buddy Guy, Stevie Ray Vaughan, and many other famous players have used the Strat during their careers. That was the sound, you know? That sort of banjo. Here is Eric Clapton talking about his famous Fender Stratocaster called Brownie. takes me back to a state of mind and a state of capability. What, what I would always look for on a, on a strap was a maple neck that had been worn out. <laughs> you know, that was the thing. If it looked brand new, then it was obviously, you know, it was like a restaurant. If there's lots of people in there, you know, it's got to be good food. So um, I just thought if it had all those kind of worn out patches, it meant that it had been, you know, well favoured. So that, that would, this probably would have pretty much been what, what it was like when I bought it. And here's more from Eric Clapton talking about the first time he heard and saw a Fender guitar. I saw Buddy Holly holding one. Buddy Holly played one. And, and you know, the, all those records that he made, it sounded like it was really, really quiet. You know, and the tone, you know, it was, he played it like an acoustic guitar a lot of the time. Um... So it had that initial appeal to me when I was a kid. But then somewhere down the road, I went to the marquee and saw Buddy Guy. And I heard Buddy Guy on an album called Folk Festival of the, of the Blues, where he was the new kid on the block playing with Muddy and Howling Wolf, and they were all singing, and he just launched into this solo that killed everybody dead, you know. And, uh, and then I went to see him at play, and... And he was bouncing it off the floor, you know, playing it behind his, between his legs, behind his head. But, but, but taking it off and throwing it on the floor and bouncing it and catching it and play. I mean, all these kind of tricks that obviously have been going on, you know, for, for those guys for a long time. Everyone was up to that, apparently, back there. And, and, and it was, you know, went out a little bit. And he didn't use, you know, the wang bar. It was all... Man, I thought that's this. This is the sound, and then Hendrix. Yeah, and 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 Jimmy was playing one while I was still playing an SG, and so I, and I didn't get to it then, but I got to it right away afterwards. And I think the the problem was trying to find the um, um, the maple necks. You know, they weren't that. You know, the the the, the all the all the model, models that were current at that time had rosewood fingerboards, so. They'd have kind of gone out of circulation this end of the, of, the, of, the, of the scene anyway. It wasn't until I went through the States on tour that I started picking them up in pawn shops and uh, record shops for a song, you know, and I'd buy four or five at a time. 
So that comes back to me, you know, when I pick up these guitars. That all comes back to me, doing the Johnny Cash show, mm. you, know, all, you know, with Carl Perkins, man. I mean, touring with that in a quartet that was quieter, funky, very, very strong. All of it hinged on the toughness of this guitar. There's a lot involved. There is there's a nostalgic thing uh, about my own journey and at, let alone the journey of the guitar. The two things combine. And here's legendary blues guitarist Buddy Guy talking about his first attraction to the Fender Stratocaster. My first love was the, the, the Fender Strat and the Fender Basement. I was playing the Strat, doing it, trying to do as much like Guitar Slim as, as, as I could because I, I copied a lot off of him. And Eric tells me in a later date that him and Beck caught me that night and changed the whole world of playing strats. And they just all went for the strat and the sound that I was getting. And I'm thankful they did that because they have helped me a lot since then. Uh, the reason I like playing Fender guitars is uh, when this guitar come out as a solid piece. Before that, it was all acoustic guitars. If you would drop one of them, good night, Irene. So... The Fender guitar would take a lot of punishment, and it was a matter of fact, I toured Africa once with a, with a, 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 a vintage Strat, and they, we was in a, a, a station wagon, we had to put it on top, and it blew off at 90 miles an hour, and when I went back to retrieve it, a, a truck was about to run over it, and they saw me laying in the street to keep it from running over, and all I had was one key head and got a little flat, and I just had to turn it up. I had a couple of keys bent, but the guitar was still in peace until somebody stole it from me 30 years later. So it's just uh, the type of a wear and tear guitar that when I was a youngster, I was wild. I would throw it across the floor and everything you could get it, and I wouldn't worry about it being uh, a, a bust wide open, a crack wide open, or something like that. From the Telecaster to the Stratocaster, without Leo Fender, American music would not be the same. Jimi Hendrix, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Eric Clapton, David Gilmore, Buddy Guy, Mark Knopfler, Keith Richards, Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, Prince, George Harrison, Muddy Waters, just a few of the world's best guitarists that built their sound around Leo Fender's design. Not bad for a guy who never even learned how to play the guitar. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And there you have it. While Leo Fender's personal story is short and sweet, it paid off in the end. $600 investment turning into a multi-million dollar guitar empire that is recognized around the world. And listen to all those figures. Listen to those guys telling stories about their guitars, their first guitars. Like some of us were talking about a first date or a first car. I'll never forget seeing Bruce Springsteen at the Stone Pony, and I knew he was there that night because there was that Fender Esquire of his with a chip in it. And it was sitting on a stand, and a couple of us recognized it, moved over to it, and these bouncers, like, jumped on us, and then went, shh, because he was going to be a surprise guest for a small act playing in this little tiny club in New Jersey. But that's how he knew. That was not only a Fender Esquire, it was old, it was beat up, it was the one you always see Bruce playing, and he never let go of that. He's still carrying around that same guitar he played back in Asbury Park in the late 1960s and early 70s. And that's the affection these guys, whether it's David Gilmore or Marty Stewart or Mike Campbell. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. The life of Leo Fender. Great job on this, as always, Jesse. This is Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Our Hillsdale interns this year were sent on a winding, epic road trip through the American South. They went on big boats, they ate clams. Monty was almost shut in a record store for the night, which actually would have made him quite happy. They also went to the top of Lookout Mountain, where the famous Rock City Gardens were located. Many Americans know Rock City for its natural beauty, but behind that beauty lies an interesting story about love and entrepreneurship. Here's Monty and Rock City Inc. CEO Bill Shapin with the story of Rock City. At the top of a mountain straddling the border of Georgia and Tennessee, the distant sound of a waterfall, the rustling of the leaves, families enjoying a day out, and the plucking of a banjo are carried upon fresh southern winds. Welcome to Rock City Gardens, the staple destination of Lookout Mountain that has welcomed generations of visitors to its grounds. Rock City is the lasting impact of a single family who have dedicated their lives to improving the beautiful landscape that is Rock City Gardens. CEO Bill Shapin continues that family legacy today. But there's more to the story than just the incredible view. The story of Rock City is one of ingenious entrepreneurship and the devoted love of a husband to his wife, Garnet Carter's wife. So Garnet's life began up on the north end of Lookout Mountain and the Spanish-American War took place and men were training at Fort Oglethorpe and Uncle Garnet sold souvenirs of Chattanooga and Lookout Mountain to the soldiers. Garnet continued to uh, grow and his, his dad had a business called the Carter Company and Garnet Carter and his brother Paul were salesmen and they drove wagons with goods on the back of the wagons. Uncle Paul took the route all the way up to Cincinnati and Uncle Garnet took the routes all the way over to Jackson, Tennessee. And Jackson, Tennessee is where Garnet met the love of his life, Frida Uttermullen. And he brought her back to Lookout Mountain Frida was the daughter of German immigrant Charles F. Udermullen, a classically trained violinist who was first chair for Charles Lisk and later the director of the Berlin Opera before immigrating to the United States. Frida and Garnett would marry in the 1910s, and Garnett continued to expand and build upon his investments, working closely with pre-existing hotels on Lookout Mountain. And then in the 1920s, something happened. The Florida real estate boom. Wanting to get in on the action that was occurring down south of him, Garnett along with others, bought the land that would later become Rock City with the intent of turning it into a golf course and resort. And Frida would have the biggest influence upon this land. Garnet and his dad and another man developed this real estate and it was a resort development and called it Fairyland. And Fairyland was named because of Frida's love of European folklore and she named all the roads. Fleetwood Drive, who was a king of the gnomes, and Oberon Trail. One road was named Hardy Road, and Hardy was the name of the mayor of Chattanooga. So Uncle Garnet knew how to play politics. But Garnet kept these 15 acres for Frida to develop her gardens. And he built this home, and Frida named the home Carter Cliffs. 
Frida was really taking the role of the woman behind the successful man who made it necessary. <laughs> but actually, she was the inspiration of Rock City Gardens. And she designed the trail, and the entire trail is called the Enchanted Trail because of Frida's love for folklore. Being German, she had a love and fascination with gnomes. And so she populated her garden with gnomes. And she named these features along the trail, Gnomes Overpass, Goblins Underpass, and other fairy tale themed names. But there were still hotels on Lookout Mountain. So people were coming as they had ever since the first hotels were built up here. And they would come to Rock City and they would visit. But just like today, they were litter bugs. So they'd bring their picnics over here that had been prepared at the hotel and they would leave trash. So Uncle Garnet said, well, by golly, they're coming to my house in my yard. I'm gonna build a wall around it. I'm gonna start charging admission. So that's what he did. And he built this little gatehouse out at the end of the driveway and Frida sold souvenirs and gingerbread with lemon sauce. Then, as Garnet made money, he continued to reinvest in the business. And in 1936, he said, you know, I'm gonna advertise and I'm gonna paint barns. And if the beautiful landscape put Rock City on the map, the barn painting campaign is what chiseled Rock City into the edifice of roadside Americana history. He hired a young man named Clark Byers and Clark and Uncle Garnet drove away from Chattanooga on US Highway 41, and they found a barn right on the highway before you got into Chattanooga. And he said, we're gonna paint that one. And it said, Sea Rock City, high top lookout mountain. And then they went in the other direction and they painted barns. Uncle Garnet was very specific on which barn to paint. It had to be after the end of a long straightaway and in a curve. So he selected the barns and then gave Clark lots of paint and lots of postcards. And Clark would go out and select a barn and draw a little picture of it. And when he ran out of money and ran out of paint, he would call Uncle Garnet and ask him for more of each and Uncle Garnet would send it. In the late 40s, Clark had painted over 900 barns from Florida to Michigan, from Texas to Virginia, from Missouri to North Carolina. And they were emblazoned with messages, Sea Rock City, enjoy Lover's Leap, um, even old grouches like Fairyland Caverns, so that came in the early 50s. So all roads lead to Rock City. Um, and my favorite is Sea Rock City, World's Eighth Wonder. So that continued. And then my dad came to work with Uncle Garnet in 1947 after having served in World War II in the U.S. Army Air Corps. And they decided because the roads were getting consolidated, that they needed to get into building signs. 
because it was easy, easier to climb a sign than it was to climb onto the roof of a barn. So Rock City became one of the largest sign companies in the Southeast. Garnet Carter passed away in 1954, but his impact on Rock City continues to live on today. It's generational, and so is the park experience, as Bill Shapin knows firsthand. Today, it would be called conservation. And the unique thing about what they did is they conserved these geological formations that had been written about since before the Civil War, but made them accessible to people from all over the world, from all ages, races, and creeds to enjoy what we say God created and man enhanced. Since we took over in 1984, we have tried making areas of Rock City Gardens accessible because we want everybody, no matter their age, to be able to enjoy it. It's a multi-generational experience that Garnet and Frida wanted the world to come and visit. So over half of our visitors have been here before and they come back with their children as they had been brought by their parents. But the experience is not the only thing that continues to live on. So does the spirit that was so central to Garnet Carter's success and continued success of Rock City. Bill Shapin and Rock City's partners are continuing that legacy today. And when we come back, more of the story of Rock City here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we return to the story of Rock City Gardens. And here's Monty and Rock City Inc. CEO Bill Shapin to tell us more about this beautiful place and its story. Rock City and the work of Garnet Carter and his family embodies what it means to be dedicated, but it also embodies the American spirit of open entrepreneurship and business ownership that continues today. And according to Bill Shapin, that's hardly a coincidence. I think Garnet Carter's dream was to create a place to honor his wife that would be enjoyed by people in perpetuity. And the reason he developed a business around it is because of his love for free enterprise and the American system of family-owned businesses. Most businesses in America are small businesses. I think he would be amazed to know that Rock City has expanded. But free enterprise and the idea of making a profit to reinvest in your business is what Uncle Garnet did. But Garnet was not the only Carter to have an impact on Lookout Mountain and Chattanooga. Garnet's brother Paul also did. Uncle Garnet and Uncle Paul were generous people in each of their cases, they were thinking of the next generation and generations to come. Paul developed the area at the highest point of Lookout Mountain and built a hotel called the Castle in the Clouds. He donated it to Covenant College in 1963. And the head of development there was a man named Alan Dubel. 
and Alan would go see Uncle Paul to let him know how the college was progressing. His last visit with Uncle Paul, he went down there and he had this large painting behind him of Covenant College. And Uncle Paul said to Mr. Dubel, why do you keep coming down here? He said, well, we want to tell you the story of the success of the college. And Uncle Paul said, don't you understand? That was the worst business decision I ever made in my life. I went bankrupt, my friends invested a lot of money, and they all lost it. All we wanted to do was build a hotel and invite people to come to Lookout Mountain to experience what I had done when I grew up. And Alan Dubel, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mr. Dubel said, well, Mr. Carter, now people don't come for two or three days or a week. They're here for four years. They learned to love Chattanooga, and many of those students have graduated and become business leaders in the town that you love. And Uncle Paul, with a tear in his eye, said, young man, you have made an old man's dream come true. And Rock City Today continues to be family owned and operated. An amazing feat considering 70% of family run businesses fail by the second generation and 88% do by the third. You know, there are some wonderful attractions in the Southern Highlands attractions that have taken a path to the not-for-profit world. Chimney Rock Park, after having been run and managed by three generations of family, decided that it was time for them to sell to the state, and so it's now a state park. We discussed some things like that with my children and with management and we have decided that as i've mentioned free enterprise and the entrepreneurial mission of creating a profit and investing in the people and that's where we rise to the top but investing in the people doesn't just mean investing in the guests who visit rock city what it also means is investing in the people who work there too, even if it's just for a summer or a first job. We have a great mission, and it is to create memories worth repeating for our guests and our partners, the people who work here. And that's why customer service is such a big part of our culture and our mission. Rock City hires over 300 people in a year who get an opportunity to come to work at Rock City Gardens to work with a team leader who has a mission of creating memories worth repeating. Their next job may be the team leader or the manager, but if it's not here at Rock City, they will be the best partner for the next business to whom they go. They have been trained to be entrepreneurs, to have, be motivated, 
and we have helped them. And the fostering of a productive, customer-service-minded work environment has led them to become a leader in Chattanooga and Lookout Mountain Tourism for years. But since inheriting the business, Bill Shapin has also heavily invested in it on an experiential level, as seen in their new ice cream chain, Clumpy's. But there is something else that Bill is investing in that he believes helps everyone, even his competitors, the free market. I coined a phrase in 1989. Google says it was in 2002, but it wasn't, and it is mine, and it is coopetition. We in Chattanooga in 1989, when I was head of the Convention and Visitors Bureau, decided that we needed to cooperate to get people to come to Chattanooga. And so we pooled our advertising money with Ruby Falls, Rock City, and some smaller organizations so that we could go to Atlanta and advertise Chattanooga as a destination. So we cooperated. But for Rock City and Ruby Falls, I-75 and the roads that lead to Chattanooga, we compete. And for the last nine of 10 years, Rock City Gardens has achieved the most outstanding guest service award in the Southern Highlands attractions. We've got to work to bring more people to town, but the reason our market share is growing at Rock City is because we compete and we provide the highest level of service of any attraction in the region. And what the economy now is doing is really becoming an experiential economy. People want to enjoy the view of seven states, the food at Cafe 7, the geode mining experience that we have. People are buying experiences, whether it's entertainment through music or dining with food, it's experiential. But according to Bill, there's something more than that that he owes his family's continued amazing success to. I think one of the greatest reasons to run and manage Rock City Gardens and to have expanded into other hospitality businesses, but for this core business, the legacy of the attraction and the idea that we are stewards for just a short period of time, that it will roll over to someone else to have the responsibility. We do want not to leave no trace. We want to leave a trace. We want to leave it better than it was when we got it. And I think that that has been our experience with Sea Rock City Incorporated, which was able to purchase Rock City Gardens and the sign business from my dad and my siblings with the help of other investors. And now the ownership has been consolidated back to the family. And I, as the leader of the organization, realize that it's not going to be mine 
for much longer and I need to make sure that it's better than it was when we bought it from my dad who made sure that it was better than it was when he bought it from Uncle Garnet and Uncle Garnet made sure that it was better than it was when no one was truly caring for it. And so stewardship, not ownership, is the key to making a family business successful for generations. I may be third or fourth generation working here at Rock City, but God created this place when he created the earth and it has changed over millennia, but for the last 85 years, it has been enhanced. And great job on that, Monty, and a special thanks to Bill Shapin for being so gracious with his time and inviting us into his home to speak. And by the way, Rock City is a huge swath of natural beauty sporting a view of seven states from the Lover's Leap Cliff and all-year-round gardens. It's a truly beautiful spot. Take the family. Garnet Carter's story, Bill Shapin's story, Rock City's story, here on Our American Stories.